0: This morning, we're continuing in our sermon series, The Gospel According to Jacob, and our scripture reading is Genesis 31, 19 through 55. Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. And Jacob tricked Laban, the Aramean, by not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had, and arose and crossed the Euphrates, and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead." When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban with his kinsmen pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, what have you done that you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs, with tambourine and lyre? And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And now you have gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Jacob answered and said to Laban, Because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what I have that is yours and take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two female servants, but he did not find them. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban felt all about the tent, but did not find them. And she said to her father, "'Let not my lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of women is upon me.' So he searched, but did not find the household gods. Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, "'What is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods. What have you found of all your household goods?' Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen, that they may decide between us two. These 20 years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, and I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. What was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was, by day the heat consumed me, and the cold by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These twenty years I have been in your house. I served you fourteen years for your two daughters and six years for your flock, and you have changed my wages ten times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac, had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, The daughters are my daughters, the children are my children, the flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day for these my daughters or for their children whom they have borne? Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap, and they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jagar-Sahadutha, but Jacob called it Galid. Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore he named it Galid and Mizpah. For he said, The Lord watch between you and me when we are out of one another's sight. If you oppress my daughters or if you take wives besides my daughters, although no one is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, See this heap and the pillar which I have set between you and me. This heap is a witness, and the pillar is a witness, that I will not pass over this heap to you, and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judged between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac, and Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. Early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home.
1: Well, hey, good morning. Uh, my name is Nate, if I haven't met you yet, I was on the slideshow had a basketball in my hands. I don't know if you saw that. They can't, they can't, you know, that's the one skill I have is they can't teach height, right? So that's what I got. Um, just one note, um, you know, yesterday, our, our, our vision at Redeemer City is to renew our city through the gospel. Uh, we believe that is the hope of the world, this good news about Jesus that rescues, redeems, restores, welcomes us in. And uh, yesterday was a great picture of that in a lot of respects. And I'll say this, at the very end of the night, um, was, was leaving, and um, someone who, uh, by all accounts, looks very different from me, uh, someone by all accounts who, in talking to him, very different background than me, uh, literally said to me, thank you. And uh, listen, this is not about us. Let me be clear about this. This is not about us. We want this city to know about this great news of Jesus. We want them to see a people that embody this news and how they live and how they love. And yesterday was one of those opportunities for us to do that. Um, we want this local neighborhood to know that there is a church in this neighborhood who loves them and is for them. And Iglesia Ebenezer, with the, the Hispanic congregation that worships in the afternoon had wonderful connections with a lot of people yesterday. It was wonderful to talk to Pastor Isaac. And here's why. Here's why we want them to know there's a church that is for them and loves them. Because the truth is, there is a God who loves them and is for them. And so, anyway, just just really proud of Redeemer City. Thanks for all um, everybody participating yesterday. It was wonderful. All right, well, I got, I got to stop. All right, here's the deal. this morning, we have been in a series... Uh, this summer, looking at the life of Jacob, and we have seen this deeply broken uh, man. He's self-serving, he, he cheats, he lies, and yet this God of grace goes after him, like meets him right as he is. And, and this is quite amazing because if you know anything about Jacob, you would say, this is not the guy who God would like look out for. You wouldn't expect it. There's nothing in him that makes you say, yeah, God would look at him. And that's really good news because whether you realize or not in Scripture, actually Scripture says we're all like Jacob. We're all like Jacob. We're no different from him. And that means if there's a God who would actually intervene in the life of Jacob, there is a God who would intervene and actually take interest and care And pursue people like you and me. But one of the things about God's grace is that when you really encounter it, it always has an effect. If you really encounter God and his grace, it's going to transform you. It's going to change you. And Jacob, as we're going to see As we've seen, he's a deeply broken man. But in the very end of his life, he is far different. The arc of his life has changed. He has been transformed by this grace. In our text today, we actually begin to see this like this transformation taking place. We can see for this the first time Jacob begin to say, "I trust this God. I am committed to this God." And the key phrase at the end of the passage in verse fifty three is when it says this. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. Now this sounds strange. It sounds like you know Jacob's scared of his dad. I'm swearing by because I'm scared of my dad. But this is a metonymy, um, which is which basically means this. When someone when you say to someone, "Hey, can you give me a hand?" You don't literally mean a hand, right? You're saying, "Can you give me some help?" Or when the news comes on, and the news says something like this: "The White House gave an update on that matter." You know, it wasn't a house that gave an update; it was the press secretary of the president that made an announcement. It's, you replace one word with the other, and so here Jacob is saying this: he exchanged the words, he exchanged the word for God to fear. And in one way or another, what we're seeing is Jacob is saying this, I have now a fear of God. And this is what's interesting about this. This is what it means. This is the implications for us this morning. It means God is not so much interested in actually making you believe in him. A lot of people believe in God. But rather that you would tremble at knowing him or consider it this way, that God's grace is not merely to, to change your schedule in such a way that you would maybe show up on a Sunday morning here for a couple hours, but it's actually that an encounter with his grace would change you from Monday to Saturday that you would tremble at the privilege of serving this God. Or that God's grace is, is not merely meant to take you to a place where you have this pre Domesticated view of God that you can manage, that you can compartmentalize, but that you would learn by His grace, you would have a joyful reverence for this God. In other words, and here's the thing that's unsettling whether you are a Christian this morning, and you believe, you've been believing for 20 plus years or more, or you're here this morning, you're exploring the Christian faith, you're not safe from this text. I'm not safe from this text. Because what's happening in Jacob's life, it challenges each of us to consider that the grace of God is meant to move us to a place, as one author would put it, to trust God with trembling. So, think about where this text is meant to take us, let me give us three places along the way to consider. There's two truths, a lie, and an oath. So let me pray and we'll, we'll get in. Almighty God, would you take this word and would you illuminate for us to see you as you are, that it might lead each one of us and collectively to trust you with trembling. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Well, two truths. Uh, As we enter in the text, uh, to kind of recap, Jacob has worn out his welcome with his uncle Laban. We saw last week that there was this growing envy as Jacob amassed all this wealth at Laban's expense. And so much so, it says, that at the early part of chapter 31, it says, Laban did not regard him with favor as before. And that's an understatement. And at the very beginning of the chapter, uh, God comes to Jacob and says, you need to return to the land of your fathers. And in verse 3, we see this line. God makes this promise. He says, I will be with you. I want you to think for a moment in your own life. Life is hard, right? Um, But it's really hard when you're alone. Uh, Perhaps you're in a season which you're waiting to hear back on test results. Or it's maybe one of the first weeks on the job. Or it's a really difficult relationship, it's a hard conversation. Or it's just having young kids and being at home alone. You know the difference it is when you just have someone that's with you in the midst of those moments. Even if those circumstances don't change, there's something about having someone with you. Knowing you're not alone. And one of the things that's fascinating is 20 years earlier, as Jacob was heading out to find Laban, In the initial journey, as he met God at Bethel, God had made a promise. This is what it is in chapter 28, verse 15. God said, For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And now, as Jacob begins to make his plans to leave Laban after 20 years to make the 350 to 400 mile trek back, God yet again confirms the promise. I will be with you. You know, um, I make this commitment to not use J.R. Tokens Fellowship of the Ring only once every six months. So this is my one time So come back at Christmas. We'll say it again probably. But there's a, you may remember in the movie, there's a one point Frodo is realizing how much danger he's in. Right? He's, He realizes how much his life is at stake, and he also loves his friends, and he realizes that them being around him puts their lives in danger. And at one point, after recognizing that, he decides he's going to leave them all. And so he gets into a rowing boat to leave, to try to get away. Only Sam, Samwise Gamgee, sees him from the shoreline, and he's yelling at Frodo, and Frodo says, hey, no, no, no. Tells him, go back. But Sam won't stop. He jumps in, and he can't swim, but it doesn't matter. And Frodo knows he can't swim, and he begins to drown, but he won't go back. And so Frodo reluctantly pulls him in the boat. And Sam says to him this, I have made a promise. Don't you leave him, Samwise Gamgee. Listen, one of the reasons why at the end of this chapter... We're going to see Jacob make an oath, swear, say, This is my God, is because he's beginning to see that God is faithful, that God will not leave him. Even the people like Jacob, he, God will not leave people like Jacob. He is faithful. Consider this for a moment that God is not flaky, He's good. So, Jacob begins to head out, and he does so in a timely manner. It's in the midst of shearing of sheep, and Laban, of course, is off for a few days doing that, and so Jacob gets a head start, but Laban hears that Jacob's left with with his two daughters and everything, and so he gets all of his people together, and they begin to pursue after Jacob. And Jacob is vulnerable. And Laban is not happy. And finally, after 10 days after Jacob has left, Laban has him in his sights. But before he can do anything, look at what happens in verse 24. But God came to Laban, the Aramean, in a dream by night And said to him, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Do you catch this? God is intervening. He is stepping in to protect Jacob. And as Laban overtakes Jacob the next day, he begins to say this, Jacob, why have you tricked me? and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword, which of course is completely untrue. He begins to say to Jacob, I would have sent you out with a party, with singing. I'm sorry, Laban, I don't trust you. That's not true. But Laban, he's angry. But then Laban says this in verse 29, It is in my power to do you harm, But the God your father spoke to me last night, saying, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Do you notice what's happened there? Laban's telling Jacob. He hears the man who he's running from tell of his God's intervention. And again, I'm just imagining as Jacob hears Laban testify to what his God has done, He had to be thinking of 20 years earlier when God had made this promise in chapter 28. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. The first truth was I am with you, but the second truth is I will keep you, which means God was making a promise, I will protect you. And here we see in this passage, God following through, intervening, and making sure that Laban does not harm him. Consider for a moment when when Jacob had arrived at Laban's doorstep 20 years earlier. You know, Jacob was pretty confident in himself, pretty self-sufficient in his ability to get what he wants. But now, over 20 years, he has been humbled He he has been mistreated by his uncle Laban, and now he is more aware than ever of how insufficient and vulnerable he is, and yet he's beginning to see the same God that showed up at Bethel, that revealed himself to Jacob, and made a promise to be with him and, and keep him, is following through on it. Listen, these two truths, I I will be with you and I will keep you, are at least a portion of why Jacob, in the end of this passage, will lead Jacob to make an oath. Because in a sense, he's saying, if this is who you are, then I do not want any other God but you. So that's the two truths. But then there's the lie. You know, um, at the end of Laban's initial prosecution of Jacob for leaving, he makes this final statement. But why did you steal my gods? And um, the reader knows that Jacob didn't steal anything, but the reader knows that Rachel stole her father's household gods. And Jacob responds, because he doesn't know it, hey, anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. And of course, we're left in suspense. What's going to happen? But this also leaves us with a question. Why did Rachel steal the household gods? You know, there's a variety of responses different commentators give, but perhaps the one I think that makes the most sense is simply this. Think about it. Rachel was going to a place where she had never been. She's scared. She's nervous. She's for sure heard of the God of Isaac, but she's lived with the God of Nahor. In other words, this is what one commentator, Ian DeGuide, would say. She wanted to take along with her a plan B, a little insurance policy in case things didn't work out. And then he writes, "'Surely Rachel is the picture of us, isn't she?' Like her, we are a mass of contradictions. Like us, she is faith, but that faith is often almost overwhelmed by her unbelief, or rather her preference for being in control of her destiny. I happen to agree with Ian here. What he's suggesting is quite true for me. I assume it's true for you. Uh, oftentimes, right, we, we, we know these truths that God will keep us or watch over us. We say we trust God, but we attempt, sometimes it's to build an identity, a status based in a city like this on our academic achievements. We say we trust God, but sometimes what really holds sway in our life is the number of likes on our InstaFace account. We say we trust God, But oftentimes, if we're honest, the household God is the amount in our bank account, and either the security it brings or the status that can be achieved through what we can buy. Either way, this is the challenge, this is the lie that in some ways is insidious in each of our lives, is that something else can give us plan B. Something else can actually give us security. Something else can give us life. As one author would put it, we heap on created things, infinite, immortal expectations. And that's the lie. We're all a little bit like Rachel. And in this account, Laban looks really foolish. Here he has been rebuked by the God of Isaac in a dream, but he's still searching for his household gods. And The scene moves forward and we get to Rachel's tent. And what is going to happen? We're asking the question, is Laban going to find the household gods? Is Rachel going to be killed? What's going to happen here? And then we find out that Rachel has hidden them. That she's actually sitting on them. And then in verse 35, this is what what Rachel says. She says to her dad, let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you for the way of women is upon me. Oh man. Do you know what this says about the household gods? That they're merely trinkets. That they're actually kind of, to be honest, defiled. To be kept in a place like that. And Laban, who has deceived many, Is now deceived by his daughter. And he looks foolish. And Jacob gets so upset that Laban has scoured throughout his entire things looking for the household gods that he begins to recount the 20 years of Laban's mistreatment, how his wages have been changed 10 times, how he served 14 years for his two daughters, and then culminates with this statement in verse 42. He says, If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. This is the drop the mic moment in the case. Jacob, notice he he says, he doesn't say this is my ingenuity or my skill that has got me here. It's not that. Jacob says, my God saw my affliction. And here's the question for the reader, for us, is simply this. Whose God are you going to trust? You know, there's something, there's something so alluring about trusting household gods. But in the end, it's empty and foolish, is it not? For it's a lie. I was talking to a friend the other day, and um, he's, he's kind of at the top of his field. And he was talking about his colleagues who are at the top of their fields. Again, these are the best of the best. And um, he made this comment. He said his colleagues are miserable. They have the status. They have the security. They have the power. And they're miserable. It's household gods. You see, what we're left with at this point... In one way or another the question is what are you going to build your life on? On the God who sees your affliction or on household gods? That's the comparison. Are you going to are you going to put your trust comparatively speaking in something that is merely trinkets? Or are you going to put your trust in the God who sees afflictions and intervenes? The God who makes promises And is faithful. Well, Lastly, the oath. You know, um, Laban responds. And uh, he's still so irrational. (laughs) He claims that the daughters are his, the children are his, as well as the flocks. But here's the thing, Laban is not in a position anymore. He's looked foolish, he's been rebuked by the God of Isaac... And so the best he can do is to offer a covenant. In essence, a non-aggression pact. And here's the upshot. Think about this for a moment. Jacob showed up at Laban's doorstep with nothing. And now he's leaving. He has Laban's two daughters and most of his flock. And all Laban can do is say, we need to make a covenant because you're equal with me. It's incredible. And in ratifying the covenant, Laban swears by the God of Abraham and the God of Nahor. It was a very polytheistic culture. Sure, I'll take your God, I got my God, we're going to swear by that. But Jacob, he swears by one. In verse 53, Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. Listen, we need to pause here for a moment. The arc of Jacob's life, do you see what's happened? 20 years earlier, he had this incredible encounter with God. And when God intervened and met him at Bethel, he said this, he began to barter with God. He said, if you will keep your promise, you'll grant me security, prosperity, and return home, I'll acknowledge you. And then D.A. Carson puts it this way. Now Jacob has come to realize that at this moment, God has protected him, kept his promise, given him everything he has. And so, in response, he swears the oath. He says, This is my God. In other words, Jacob is now at a point of surrender, commitment. He's still got ways to grow. But he's so drawn to this God because he's been so faithful to him in the midst of his affliction. And here's the bigger story. Brothers and sisters, centuries later, a descendant of Jacob would come. And the reason why is because he saw your affliction and he saw my affliction. At one point, Jesus proclaimed this message of good news, and he said this, according to the prophet Isaiah, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And that freedom that Jesus is talking about there was to deal with sin and death. That this Jesus went all the way to the cross and rose from the dead, to set us free from our sin and death and to welcome us in. In other words, don't you understand? This great promise of I'll be with you and I will keep you, do you see how wonderfully it is fulfilled in the person of Jesus? God with us, a God who will do whatever he can do to protect us from that which actually is most damaging, most destroying. And the question is this morning, what's your response? What's my response? There's um there's a psalm, Psalm 130. It says this: If if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. And the the psalmist says this: the reality that God forgives. (laughs) It doesn't actually call for just a mere response of belief it actually calls for a response of fear, of a trusting with a trembling. And that means, as one pastor put it, if you live as if God only accepts moral people, and this is what so many people think, if I can just be good enough, but if you live like that, then this is going to actually bring you a slavish fear. You're going to be so fearful of punishment. But do you understand? When you understand the cross and the empty tomb... That wipes away, it wipes away that flavish fear. Put it this way, a lot of people in Madison think this, God accepts everyone just as they are, but that merely just invokes kind of a warm affection. But a God who is holy, who sees our affliction and comes to rescue us from the cross and the empty tomb, Psalm 130 says, it produces a trusting with a trembling, And if that's true, then this means you can't merely believe in God. It actually, if you understand what's happened through Jesus, it brings you to a point of trembling at knowing this God. This means it doesn't really change a couple hours a week, but to change you into someone who is in awe at the privilege of serving God. In other words, this means you can't merely shrug at this God as if no big deal, But it actually leads to a joyful reference that when you see Christ in Him crucified and Him risen, it means you come to the point, at some point, where you have to say, You are my God. Let's pray. Father, wherever we are this morning, we pray that you would take us from mere belief to trusting you with trembling. Would you move us from bartering with you to committing all of ourselves to you? Not so you'll love us more, <laughs> but rather because we see what you've done in your Son, that you being for us and that you being with us. And as we see Christ, you would help us to respond that you are our God. And we pray this in Christ's wonderful name. Amen.